Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. On today's show, we have the British milliner Stephen Jones. His creations, which stretch previously unbroken limits of imagination and beauty and come with an added dash of magic and British whimsy, have adorned the heads of Princess Diana, Meghan Markle and Mick Jagger, and he has made runway pieces for everyone from John Galliano and Mark Jacobs to Rihanna and Grace Wales Bonner. In 2009, he co-curated an exhibition on hats at the V&A featuring headgear from the museum's archives. And in 2019, he was commissioned by the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to create head treatments for the exhibition of Camp Notes on Fashion. Jones started out as an 80s Blitz kid, hanging out with Lee Bowery and Boy George, before setting up shop in Covent Garden, from where he still operates today with his devoted team. In a rare moment of calm, he found time to stop by Five Carlos Place to fill us in on all of this, as well as to share the five objects that would go into his cabinet. Stephen Jones, welcome to the to the Matches Fashion Podcast. Good morning, my dear. You're having quite a day. Yes. Today. yes. We've we've already been spent the morning at the V and A. Absolutely. Probably sick of the sight of me by now, but um, not quite. <laughs> one more, one small. But anyway, it's great to have you on, on the show, and um, we're here at Five Carlos Place now, in a different part of London, um, which we both arrived at by Black Cab, which I thought was quite fun, um, because you have designed a line of headpieces that mm-hmm. matches fashion. Yep, absolutely. Which I've just seen next door, which are very beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled with them, yeah. How do you feel seeing them in the installed there? It was wonderful. I haven't seen them for maybe about a week now. And then seeing them installed and arranged beautifully, it was remarkable and exciting. And they looked fun and elegant and light-hearted and exactly how I wanted them to look. And they're bridal. They're somewhat bridal, but at the same time, I mean, you couldn't be a guest at a wedding because a lot of them are in cream and white and pale pink. But certainly you could wear them to race meetings, for example, um, around the world. (laughs) Royal Ascot, Hong Kong, Melbourne Cup. uh, um, Because weddings must be a huge part of your business. Absolutely. I mean, particularly in Britain, um, but around the world as well, both for the bride and the guests. And the mother of the bride too. And do you, and is it just do you find that people from other parts of the world come to you for that particularly British experience? Absolutely, because around uh, for everywhere, people tend to think that hats are a particularly British thing. I don't know if they have this idea that every girl is wearing a big pink hat trimmed with flowers, and every man's wearing a top hat or a bowler hat or something like that, uh, but. Certainly, I think because of Her Majesty the Queen, hats are always associated with Britain and with formal occasions, and and it's fun. 
you know, 364 days of the year we haven't got to dress up. On that one particular day, absolutely go for it. Now, I just explained to you before we started on the podcast that there's a special format where we have we have a cabinet upstairs and I wondered what was the first thing you put into your cabinet that best represents you? Well, apart from <laughs> myself or a hat, yes. I always think what I do is a bit of a cabinet of curiosities because you know, hats are there to, yes, to beautify, but they're also to transport you to the other place, to the person who you are not, the person that you want to be. So it is a curiosity in itself. But for that actual cabinet, um, and I design all over the world. I, I work here, I work in France, I work in America, in Japan, with doing my own collection and collections for other designers. So, so, and so much of my work is about communication, both, both in the design and expressing what people want to say by having that particular hat on. But I think the, the start, apart from the, 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 the turgid mess within the, my brain, um, the thing that gets the idea out there is my Lamy 2000 propelling pencil. Um, when I was a little boy, my father had a Lamy 2000 pen, and it was very much about one day when I'm grown up, I'm going to be able to afford one of those. And sadly, I've had to buy quite a few of them because um, I do tend to sort of leave them places or people appropriate them, of course. Um, but anyway, there's something about the balance and the weight of this and the fact that it was designed in the early 60s and it's a completely beautiful shape. Um, so that, and then what I do normally when I'm sketching is I have that, so that would be the first object in my cabinet of curiosities. Then I take a photograph of the sketch actually with my new iPhone 11, which I've just got, and send that to Mark Jacobs, Maria Grazia Turi at Dior, to Ray Kawakubo, uh, around the world. Um, so that's how I communicate my designs. And then if I get the OK or an adaptation, then I'll send that back to my workroom in work London. Because in a way, when you're a hat maker, you're always getting two people. Um, if you're a dress designer, they come to you. Um, so that's why I'm always on the move. So your process then very much is about sketching. That's how you that's how you Absolutely. develop your ideas. Absolutely. I mean, most milliners tend to work in three D, and I can as well. But in you know years and years ago, um, in fact, even now, if you're sending a sample to another country, it normally has to have customs forms and be declared and everything. If you're just sending a sketch, it's so much quicker and easier. And years ago, whether it was sending sketches to Japan or sending faxes or emails or whatever. Um, and it, that's why it's about communication. It's just an easy way to get that information there and the designer can react quickly and we can make a sample. So it just speeds everything up in the way that fashion so sped up now. Mm. When did you learn to draw? When did I learn? I, I don't think I ever really learned how to draw. It was sort of always there. I came from a slightly a drawing family. I think people come from musical families and they've always known how to play an instrument or mathematical families and they are always, you know, great with sums. Um, we always drew, whether it was drawing in the sand with a stick or picking up a tube of oil paint age five. So you grew up in the in the Wirral. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit more about your family and what it was like there. Um, growing up there, 
it was, I felt as though it was in the middle of nowhere. Um, I, but it was beautiful. We, our house, there was our house and then the road and then the sea. And uh, on the left-hand side, there were the mountains of Wales and on the right-hand side were the bright lights of Liverpool. So, uh, and in the middle was an extraordinary changing landscape of color and texture and the sea and the wind and the rain and the sun and all of that. So that's where I grew up. But then went away to boarding school in Liverpool um, and then headed down to London to do Fashion at St. Martin's 5,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like. You've said how it was a, an exhibition at the V&A that you visited, um, I think in 1975, that got you hooked on this idea of studying fashion, or got you interested in fashion. Yeah, I, so 1900 to 1939, um, it was a wonderful exhibition of fashion, and there was a Charles James jacket there, which... Um, was a padded jacket, which looks completely contemporary to now, but also very beautiful. And I suddenly thought, oh, maybe I could do fashion. Because I was on a foundation course then, I was doing ceramics and interiors and car design and packaging design, all sorts of different things. Um, but suddenly fashion became a possibility. And amazingly enough, I got into St. Martin's, as it was called then, mm. and um, didn't look back, really. Well, it was quite a sort of colourful time culturally and, and that, on the scene then that was sort of centred around St. Martin's. Who were some of the people that you were uh, at college with? Well, it was quite funny. On my first day at college, um, I went into this big room and uh, there was all these girls wearing beige on the left-hand side and there were a couple of punks on the other side. This is in 1976, right at the beginning of punk. And it was, do I turn left or do I turn right? So do you uh, go with the most kind of Sloney or... No, Sloan? I went with the, I went with the punks. Way, I, I, went, I yeah. went with the punks. And um, so on the first day, there was this girl called Shan. And she said, well, because I'd never lived in London. She said, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, well, nothing in particular. So um, she said, well, I'm going to have lunch with my boyfriend. Um, coming into Soho Market with me, so I went down there. And um, her boyfriend was Shane from the Pogues. Um, so that's when I suddenly started to get involved in the music scene. And also, extraordinarily enough, um, there was a girl called Eve on our course as well, and she went out with Adam Ant, and it was Adam and Eve. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't make this stuff up. No, I know, I know. I mean, we thought it was quite funny then, but mm. looking back now, it just seems extraordinary and incredible. But I knew... Absolutely. Uh, sort of at the end of my time at college, I started to get to know people like Steve Strange. I knew Boy George, Spando Ballet, Duran Duran. Um, Sade was, it, when I was in my third year at college, Sade was in first year. And she was the, the most amazing looking girl. I mean, and word, on her first day at college, word went around. She said, there was this amazing looking girl. And she's wearing a really tight black sheath dress and a big black straw hat. And she looks amazing. And so she was a complete star. And that was before she opened her mouth. We didn't even know she could sing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then after you, it was Steve Strange who helped you find your shop. Yeah, absolutely. He had a day job. He, he ran the club called The Blitz, but he had a day job working at the shop called PX. And they just moved from... Um, by the tube station, uh, James Street in Covent Garden, um, to um, Endell Street. 
and they were using the ground floor but not their basement which was about the size of a postage stamp and he asked me if I wanted to have that as a little shop so um, amazingly enough that was I, it opened on the 1st of October 1980 so um, next year will be my 40th anniversary of having a business shockingly it's all an evil rumor <laughs> I only just started last year <laughs> and you're still in the same spot yeah more or less still in the same spot yeah a couple of roads over mm. How, yeah. how's Covent Garden is it do you still like being there I like being in Covent Garden I love being in Covent Garden yes what was extraordinary that I remember when I was at college there was only two shops there were only two shops in Longacre that was it the rest were lockups because the the market had just moved out and basically on the ground floor everywhere these were storerooms for fruit and vegetables there were no other shops in Covent Garden it was and in fact most of it they did want to pull down because they'd seen um, the Pompidou Centre in Paris and round the Pompidou Centre they pulled down all these um, medieval houses um, to create the Pompidou Centre and they wanted to do the same thing with Covent Garden was pull it all down and start again and they were going to actually build an extension. Their idea was to build an extension to the M4 flyover. So it would go, in fact, it wouldn't stop in Hammersmith, that it would go all the way from Hammersmith through Knightsbridge and through to Covent Garden to get to the city. That was the original planning idea. Extraordinary. Thank God it didn't happen. Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and it would still have been full of traffic and fumes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but like six going in each direction or something. <laughs> and speaking, and do you want, what, what else did you want to put in your cabinet of curiosities? I know you mentioned a, your, your travel. Well, yes, as cards. I mentioned before, travelling. So yeah. it's my um, British Airways Gold card or my Eurostar Elite card, which um, see action every week with my passport. Um, and yeah, I travel all the time. And what are you traveling for? Uh, for work, for example, I just came back from New York yesterday. I'm going to, which, where I was installing an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, I'm working on the headdresses and that. This afternoon I'm going to Paris because I work with Christine Dior and we're installing the um, selling exhibition for next autumn's pre-collection. Um, and I come back tomorrow lunchtime um, and I'm here and for tomorrow afternoon and then Saturday morning I go to Miami because I'm working on a fashion show there in Miami, uh, which is next Tuesday. So that's... Oh, sounds exhausting. Sort of, not to say a normal week, that's a little bit more than usual, um, but that's the way that it goes. I sleep very well on planes <laughs> or on the Eurostar yeah yeah um and have you always so is there anywhere you haven't been yet that you'd like to go loads of places so many places I mean even close to home I don't hardly know Scotland at all I've been there three times even though I've been to Tokyo probably 30 times or New York probably 50 times um, so there's so many places mm. to go. But in fact, whereas for most people, especially at Christmas time, they always say, oh, we're going to Mauritius for Christmas or whatever. For me, the idea of having a week at home is heaven. Mm. 
you know, because I can go down to the little shop at the end of the street and buy a pint of milk and buy a newspaper or something like that. And the nice guy in the shop, and I don't have to send him flowers to say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, for people who don't know much about millinery, tell us a bit about the process of how it works. If somebody commissions, um, I don't know if that's even the right word, a piece from you, Mm -hmm. um, do they come to your shop and have a fitting or do you go to where they are? Like, How does it work? Well, it all depends who they are. most people come to my shop and it's fun for them to try lots of different things on but um for some people that's more complicated to get out of where they live and so i will go to them but it's always a conversation and sometimes we communicate by skype or facetime or whatsapp or whatever and i'll show them a sample and they say left a bit right a bit and do uh, they tell you the kind of thing they would like or do you come up with a concept and think that say i think this would be great well most people will come to me probably because they have a specific event to wear something to of course somebody will still say well i'm in london and i'd love to get another hat and in the way that the huge shoe fans there are hat fans as well not as many as shoe fans or jewelry fans but that absolutely are do they have a special name hat fans is there a no 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 no, like millinery twitches or something no 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 no. but i i I know most of them and they're a great breed um and they're all they they a lot of them know each other not because they're just clients of mine just because there's not so many of um, but they will always try and find what somebody else has ordered. So in a funny way, they're quite competitive. <laughs> <laughs> That's really curious. There's a whole world of these people out there. Mm. Um, and you'll, uh, you make the pieces so on site? They, w- they will come and they will say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I would love to look at the collection and they will see certain hats they're interested in because they might, just want to buy a couple of hats every season because they like wearing new hats and they always think that they're very much a collector and they're really not adding to their wardrobes they're adding to their collection of what they consider to be art objects and that's why they spend a lot of money on a hat because they think it's not only for now they're sort of not it's forever um and they're very passionate about them and you know they certainly wouldn't never let anybody else borrow them they might let somebody else touch them <laughs> but um they're, they're very precious to them um and it's a collaborative effort sometimes they will make it they will take the hat exactly as it is um because they do understand that that's my sort of initial expression and that's what I believe the hat should be in. So maybe they don't really wear blue, but because the original hat was made in blue, they would respect that and say, well, yes, I'll buy it in blue. Um, but alternatively, they might say, well, I'm wearing an outfit in pink, and so I'd like it to be pink and white. Mm-hmm. It's, it works in different ways for everybody. Mm-hmm. but. You know, it it's really is a conversation. I'll see what suits them um, and try as many hats as possible on them and try and isolate how they want to look or ha- how they want to appear. Um, because, as I said before, you know, hats are, are sort of this costume that you can 
put on and take off. And often people say, you know, okay, in England, we understand really about hat wearing, but if you're coming from another culture, another part of the world, but you're going to an event in England, you don't understand. So it's often a question of education. And I often will be telling somebody to wear something slightly calmer than they imagine because they think, oh, I've got this one opportunity to wear a hat. I'm going to go hell-bent on it and really become wear something very extravagant, I'll say. No, you're going to a christening and it's on a Monday morning. You don't need to have something three metres wide with 500 flowers on it. <laughs> you know, you can be quite discreet. Mm. And Or if you're going to a wedding, you know, you... The bride is the star. You are not the star. If you go into the races, of course, you can be the star, especially if it's Ladies' Day at Ascot. What about men and hats? With all the things we've been talking about, you sort of think about women, and they're mm -hmm. the sort of peacocks in these situations. Yeah. Um, and men tend to wear hats that are for practical reasons. It's funny, Correct because you said you mentioned the word peacocks, but when you think of peacocks, it's the males. I know, as I said it, I thought exactly the same thing, yeah. And, in fact... You know, men love dressing up. I mean, naturally they are, but it's peacocks. It's so funny when we have um, people coming into our shop or our showroom and they have their young children with them. It's when they're sort of three years old or four years old or something like that. Is it the girls or is it the boys who want to put the hat on and run around and have fun? It's always the boys who want to do that. Um, and the girls are always uh, a little bit more polite actually funny unsurprisingly um but yeah guys do love dressing up i mean whether they would actually go out in that or not is a different matter but there's certainly the 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 dandyish element of people wanting to wear a hat it's funny enough it's a conversation we have with every taxi driver so so they say what do you do for a living i'm in a oh i love hats but i never wear them myself i've got five at home but i never wear them so what's that on your head? Oh, that's a baseball cap. But that's not, well, isn't that a hat? No, it's not a hat. I said, but a baseball cap is. You know, people have this idea that in the, they look at old magazines or old photographs and there's be a girl in a, in a very smart suit or dress with a great big hat with flowers on it. But that was an image in a the magazine then in the way that we have an image in a magazine now. For hats, and certainly for a formal event, they might be dressed like that, but for hats for every day, they would be wearing a simple beret, a little straw, something like that. The equivalent, absolutely, of a baseball cap. I think for celebrities, having wearing one of your pieces seems to be a rite of passage because I, when I was looking at the famous people you've made hats for, it's kind of like a who's who of the most, some of the most famous people in the world, from um, Mick Jagger, Madonna, Kate Moss. Do you remember when you became? This would, when that sort of happened, when you became this sort of go-to person? Well, I don't know that. if I am the go-to person, but I think British milliners are. Um, but I think very early on in my career, um, I started to make hats for Diana, Princess of Wales. So, and she was a great client and became a good friend. And so always, you know, hats are such a visible accessory. Um, that when a celebrity or a well-known person wears a hat or wears a different hat, suddenly that's splashed all over the newspapers. So that relationship I have with them is very important and something that you, sort of, you have to respect. Um, 
and it's also people communicate through their heads. Um, mm. you know, the queen wears a crown. <laughs> yes. Have you designed a hat for the queen? No, no, no. She has her own very, very good milliners, but yeah. oh, right. it would it, it would have it would have been a great ambition, but mm. no, it's fine. Mm. What was Princess Diana? Is there one particular hat that you made of her that you were that you thought was particularly effective? Or funny enough, I mean, often the hats I made for her were for her private life, not for her public oh, life. Right. So we did sort of soft, more casual things. She went to many different milliners, but um, for me, I made her whole sequence of berets, many, many different berets, um, and she would have the same, almost the same shape in different fabrics, in red, in beige, in black, in green. Mm. So that was the thing which was really the key thing that I did for her. Mm. Mm. Why is the Brighton Pavilion particularly appealing for you? Well, growing up by the seaside, um, in a very beautiful but quite sort of grim place in the northwest, you know, even in middle of August it was freezing and blowing a gale um, to me I had this idea that Brighton was sort of the Monte Carlo of Britain that it was complete you know decadent glamour or whatever I mean which it was slightly I mean obviously the reality is not that but in your imagination and that was somewhat summed up by Brighton Pavilion which is why Brighton got that reputation as being this this extraordinary decadent sin bin <laughs> And um, and also, I mean, I love architecture because buildings a bit like a hat that you live in or um, so, so many architects love designing hats and so many milliners like the idea of making buildings too. Um, and I always loved the Brighton Pavilion and thought it was completely inspirational and um, so I, I was invited to have an exhibition there earlier this year and exhibited almost 200 hats there and uh, it was a great success. You've also, uh, you've had a few exhibitions in fact, you had one in Antwerp in 2010 mm -hmm. I believe and then also co-curated the hats exhibition at the V&A in 2009. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, is that something do you ever feel your work crosses over into the art world or do you feel like the art and fashion are two things that are quite separate? I think it's um, all part of the great creative process and I think you can be equally creative making a cake as painting an oil painting. It's just different methods of expression. People who really love cooking and do it to the nth degree. I mean, I don't think there's no diff there's any difference. Or gardening, or writing a poem, or painting a picture. It's one of the wonderful things that humans can do is actually make something, create something. But you could say, well, this is important to create a family or educate a child. You know, it's just it's just part of life. <clears throat> I think what happens for in order for humankind to understand it. We try to compartmentalise it, but maybe in a thousand years' time they'll understand it. it's all part of the same expression. Mm. Um, and what about um, head pieces and when, from being stuff that people wear and when it crosses over into costume? Um, I know you've designed pieces for films. Mm -hmm. um, is there a difference or are you thinking in a different way when you're creating a costume as opposed to creating a piece for a client to wear? 
Um, well, even the thing for the client is somewhat of a costume. Right, because so that's it what I takes, to you, ask you, takes about, yeah. you to a different place. And But equally, for example, when I was making a hat for Audrey Tattoo in Coco Avant Chanel, uh, Coco Before Chanel, when I made put the boater on her head, you know, originally Coco Chanel was a milliner, not a dressmaker. I put the hat on Audrey Tattoo's head, she said. Thank heavens for that. That means I can act less. Because actually, the hat told the story for her. So the hat was is equally transformative for an actor or an actress. And it becomes such a, a cipher or such a symbol within the film. In fact, strangely enough, the word trilby comes from a character in the play, as does the word uh, fedora also come from a character in the play. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> I also read about how the, I only learned from researching you about the the meaning behind Mad Hatter. Yes, yes, which is about the mercury sulfide, I think, that they used to put in felt while making felt in order to make the felting process stronger and quicker. Um, it made the fibres, the animal fibres of whether it was animal fur, uh, I mean, it can be sheep's fur or rabbit fur or beaver fur, because it would go curly and it's, it helps the felting process. But of course, it's attacked people's brains as well. So very sadly, um, hence came the expression mad as a hatter, because they did go mad. And at a very young age, it was maximum 30 years old that they could work 10 years in the trade, 15 years when in the trade. When did they stop and then doing that? Was, that? Hmm? When did they stop? that? I think just pre-First World War. Gosh. Um, and it, it, very interestingly enough, if you go into the V&A archives, and almost all the men's hats, they will be in special uh, packaging because they contain mercury. And you really? can't handle them normally, and you have to put gloves on and breathing apparatus. It's actually quite high concentrations of mercury as well, and this is the saddest thing. That's so interesting. And also just to tell you the word, where the word milliner comes from, as we're in yes, school <laughs> today. Um, the mi word milliner comes from because all the original hat makers in Britain came from Milan. They were Italian. And when they arrived from Italy, they made hats and dress trimmings. But when they arrived in Britain from Italy, they went to live in Luton. Um, because Luton was some marshy land there. And that's where reeds grew. So they could, they could cut the reeds and um, plat straw out of them. And that's why Luton became the centre of the hat business in the UK, which it still is now, and the football team's called the Hatters, and et cetera, et cetera. Amazing knowledge. Yeah. What else is going into your cabinet? Um, yes, I wear a top hat frequently. For most people, it's a drawing on a page or a picture in a magazine or an old print, but I actually wear them. Um, and I have two top hats, one which belonged to my grandfather and one which belonged to my uncle. Um, and I wear them quite frequently, um, obviously for racing, for Royal Ascot, but around the world. So at the Kentucky Derby, the Pre-Dianne in Paris, Hong Kong, Dubai, and definitely the Melbourne Cup. Um, so hats follow racing, and for me, a top hat follows racing. So, I mean, I, I wear a morning suit, quite frequently too, as well as weddings that I go to. Mm. Um, and um, You wear your top hat at a 
jaunty angle. Is yes. That, is that yes. how you're supposed to wear it, or is that just your? There's no real way of how you're supposed to wear it. I'm sure um, you should be wearing it absolutely straight on. The greater the angle, the more fun it is, and maybe the more flattering it is as well. Most mm. importantly, it reminded me of Fred Astaire the way you wore it. When mm-hmm. I saw you wearing it like that in the cab. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, that's the great thing about London cabs too, the black cabs, hackney cabs, because in their sort of bylaws which decide um, what the cabs look like, the roof line has to be high enough to a gentleman can keep his hat on in the taxi. So that's um, a particular and strange thing about London taxi cabs. But yes, my top hat uh, is very precious to me and it's in reasonable condition not perfect condition, but a good top hat now, if you buy, you can only buy um, reconditioned ones if you want them to be made in Hatter's Plush because the last factory, that com- the only company that still made the fabric closed down, I don't know, 30, maybe even 50 years ago. And nobody really knows how to make them. I can make a version of them. But you'll pay up for one, which is a 58 centimetre headline, they start at about 4,500 and go up to about 10,000. Gosh. So when somebody says, can I borrow your top hat? I will always say, yes, can I have a check which yes. is undated, please? Perfect. And they laugh and they say, well, do you want to take responsibility for that? It's such a shame they don't make that fabric anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also they don't have that technique anymore. It's made in a very, very specific technique, which has died out. That's so interesting. So when you hear about, um, you know, like Chanel, for example, they keep they're keeping these artisan workshops going. It's extremely them. important it's so because important. yes, yeah. those will go. Those will go. Mm. Um, and what's extraordinary is even I remember in London when I first started making hats in the late seventies, early eighties, there were you know, four or five flower makers in Soho. Um, and they would make things specially, but you would go in and say, oh, anemones or freesias, and they would have 25 colours of them. Now, if you wanted to have a freesia made, either you would order them in Paris, have them made there, and it's about £130 a bloom, or you would have to order probably a thousand pieces and have them made in China. Also very beautifully, but you know, mm. you have to. Yeah. So what seems so simple then is actually very complicated now. But at the same time, what happens is that some things are no longer available, but then there's a whole series of new fabrics, new materials, which are available. Mm. That's interesting. Do you like to work with those new fabrics? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, people talk to me a lot about, can you 3D print hats? Well, yes, you can do, but the problem is with 3D printing, often they're very brittle, so therefore fragile, um, and it's a little bit heavy because it's made from plastic. So you've actually tried it? Yeah, 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 tried it. Um, and, tr- and tried different elements. And it can work as a particular element, but for making a whole hat, it's really not practical. Um, and that's why felt, for example, which is one of the oldest materials in the world, is so great because it's crisp and light, um, and so is straw because it's very crisp and light as well. So it's funny, yes, absolutely, I use materials that light up automatically, which is made in Israel. You know, it's extraordinary. And, you know, 
3D printing or, or other you know different types of making things. But at the same time, if you want a beautiful white fabric, there's nothing better than white cotton. And that is the most classic. If you want a perfect black, black velvet is extraordinary um, and a real challenge to work with. Hmm. We're going to finish soon, but are there any other things in your cabinet? What's the other thing in my cabinet? Fragrance. Um, no, hats and fragrance go together very, very well. What's wonderful is if somebody brings a hat back in for alteration or something, it will absolutely smell of the perfect person's perfume. And the fact that it might have their powder on the ribbon on the inside, I think it's sort of charming. I know I clean it off, but it's, it's when something has become part of them. It's so wonderful. But fragrance, I have so many different fragrances from all over the world. Um, the one that I'm wearing, I wear in autumn, is one called um, Quiconage, which is leather. It's a leather-based fragrance um, by Dior, and it's one of the specialist fragrances. And it's got this wonderful, rich smell. Um, and then I have fragrances for the spring. It's very, very seasonal. Um, and I probably change fragrance once a month. So in January, I will have something which is a, a little bit woody still, um, maybe a fragrance from Caron. Um, and then when it gets through into more spring, I actually wear a fragrance it's very interesting how they classify men's fragrances or women's fragrances. Yeah. For example, the original Miss Dior would never be considered a women's fragrance nowadays because it's much too green and too spicy. When they did Miss Dior Cherie, it's much sweeter, but mm. uh, the original one, which you can still buy, is a great men's fragrance for springtime. So in my cabinet of curiosities, I probably have about well, I would have 12 different fragrances, maybe very small vials of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't sure if that's allowed. <laughs> but definitely, we can accommodate that, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, what else are you working on for the coming months? Okay, so... Anything um, in particular you're particularly excited about that you have coming up? Yes. Um, well, of course, that's the weird thing about fashion. As Oscar Wilde said, it's a thing so ridiculous that it has to reinvent itself every six months. So, but that's, so we're always working on new collections. And in this month of January, it's probably our busiest month of the year. It's funny that people always say to me, oh, I hate January because it doesn't get light until you know, late and it goes dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's a bit of a depressing month or a slow month after the joys of Christmas and New Year. But for me, I'm absolutely in a workroom all the time because we have, even on the 3rd of January, we had the men's shows here in London and then a few weeks later, the men's shows in, in Paris. So you have your three... And then the Haute Couture as well for, for Dior. And then at the beginning of February, it's the shows in New York. And that whole sequence starts again. So January and February are actually our busiest month. But the one big project that I'm working on, which I'm very excited about, is I'm working on a new exhibition, and um, which is going to open quite soon, at the end of April, um, and with the book as well, which is all about Dior hats. Um, and it's called, in French, chapeau, which is French for hat, exclamation mark, which means also means congratulations in French. Um, Christian Dior, as Stephen Jones. 
So it's the passage of Dior hats from the time of Monsieur Dior to me. Um, and originally he was a hat designer, like Chanel was a hat designer, like Holston, like Charles James, like so many other designers that will start off in hats. And um, it's a very interesting because it's many, many years at the House of Christian Dior. So we have Dior hats and hats done by Yves Saint Laurent when he was the designer at Dior and Mark Bowen and Ferre and John Galliano and Raph Simmons, right up to date to the hats of Maria Grazia Turi. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to read it. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay. My pleasure. Love you to be here. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.